This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Today, we're continuing our way through the book of Acts. We've been talking uh, for, for several months now about how Acts is a story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And so if you've been with us, you've walked through that. If you're just joining us, uh, it, it kind of dovetails nicely with the Advent story of the arrival of Jesus. Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 14, and we'll see what it teaches us about how all of us are searching for God all of the time. And in that search, Jesus has come as God who puts on flesh to reveal himself to us as the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, and the only way not only to eternal life, but to deep and lasting uh, feelings of significance and meaning and fulfillment in all of our temporary experiences that we have right now. So Acts chapter 14 is where we'll be. If you have a Bible, we'll start in verse 8. If not, it'll be on the screens and you can follow along with me. We're picking up where we left off last week, continuing through the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, two early church leaders. They arrive in a city called Lystra, and it says, In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up, and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So as we said, Acts chapter 14, is this passage especially is a story of a people who are searching for God. Not just the people in Lystra that Paul and Barnabas show up and preach to, but Paul and Barnabas themselves were men who were searching for God. And in their search, they grew up in a Jewish context, and so their search was largely centered around the Old Testament, around following the commands and the laws of God. We saw earlier in Acts that Paul has a powerful encounter with Jesus, where in his search for God and his search for righteousness and significance and meaning, he encounters Jesus Christ as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only way to the Father, and his life is immediately and permanently transformed because of that encounter. And now Paul and Barnabas have given their lives to traveling around the world at that time and telling everyone they meet, everywhere they go, the good news about Jesus. And so they show up in different towns and they preach in synagogues, they discuss in homes, they debate in marketplaces, and they're centered around this idea of every man, woman, and child is created with a longing for something more. 
And it's not just something that was true 2,000 years ago in the area surrounding Israel, but it's something that remains true throughout history in every culture and in every human heart. We all have a longing for something more than the temporary things of life that we're experiencing. But this is why we all at some point in life have had those moments where you're laying in bed at night wondering, is this all that there is? Is everything I'm doing now the culmination of life? And, and you have that space at some point where, where you're always chasing the next rabbit, always chasing the next achievement, and, and at different points you're able to grab onto some of those, and when you grab them, you find they don't bring the lasting peace and significance and fulfillment that you were longing for. The job never satisfies The relationship never brings perfect peace. The child is never the answer to the longings in your heart. You get what you think you wanted, and then you realize you still want something else. And what we find throughout the Gospels is this idea that this desire for something more is a reflection that you and I and everyone everywhere have been created in the image of God. And at Advent, what we're remembering is that this desire is fulfilled in Jesus, Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He says, the reason you have that longing is because God has set eternity in the hearts of men. It's God who created you in his image. It's God who created you to enjoy temporary things, but never find lasting fulfillment in them. It's God who made you for a desire for something permanent, something that will last, something that will be significant. It's God who built into you that need to attach your life to something that will last after you're gone. And it's also God who designed that need to only be met in him. He loves you too much to allow you to find permanent and final satisfaction in lesser things. He loves you too much to allow you to give all of your time and your energy and your passion to things that are fleeting and temporary. And in his desire to not only put that need in our heart for eternity, but to meet it, he sends Jesus to us. In John's gospel, he announces the arrival of Jesus in the world this way. John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus comes as the eternal word of God, the one who comes to speak, to lead, to guide us into all truth. The one who comes to show us the reason you have that longing is because God made you with it, and the reason it won't be fulfilled is because it will only be fulfilled in the Father through the Son. And so Jesus comes, John tells us, as the demonstration, the presence of God's grace and truth. He comes to extend his grace that covers over our sin and everything that separates us, and he comes to reveal God's truth that we will only find eternal satisfaction in a relationship with him. And so what all of this means is we work through what Solomon teaches us and we see it culminate in the arrival of Jesus and we see it continue in the early church in Acts is that God has put this desire in our heart, but God is not hiding from us as the fulfillment of that desire. You see, there, there are paths of belief and religions in the world that will teach you the goal of your life is to progress as much as you can on a journey of enlightenment, and maybe someday at the end, right before you die, you will have achieved a level of sense, a, a sense of serenity where you finally have a sense of belonging and peace in your heart. But when you see Jesus coming as the word who puts on flesh, 
When you see him arriving as the one who is full of grace and truth, what you encounter is a God who not only wants you to encounter him, but a God who wants to reveal himself to you in personal and powerful ways. The scriptures describe a God who descends. They describe a God who comes close. They describe a God who speaks truth. They describe a God who's going to speak to you in ways that you will understand and will speak to me in ways that I will understand. They describe a God who speaks through the prophets, a God who speaks through the church, and a God who continues to speak through the Holy Spirit. And so God is not some some mystical hidden force that we must strive and hope to one day attain, but he's the creator of all, the sustainer of all, and the one who desires to reveal himself to his children. He's a loving father who brings good gifts. He is a creator who draws close to his creation. And what we see and what we celebrate during Advent is the God who shows up in personal, powerful, and undeniable ways. God has never been hidden from us. When we look and when we listen, we see him and we hear him. And this is the message that motivates Paul and Barnabas to not just receive Christ as their Savior, but motivates them to leave where they are and to begin traveling around the world, sharing this good news with everyone, everywhere. In in Lystra, we picked up their story in verse 8. It says, in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Luke is the the author of Acts, and he doesn't tell us exactly what Paul says in Lystra. He picks up the story kind of midpoint of as Paul's preaching, he looks and he sees a man who's been disabled from birth, and he speaks a word of faith, healing, and miraculous power into his life. But what you and I know, because we've kind of read through Acts to this point, is when Paul shows up and he begins to speak, He's not talking to the people about the weather, his favorite politicians, or how his team did last night, right? Paul has one message and one message only, and his message is Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He is the fulfillment of every longing and desire that you've had, and Paul preaches that message to Jews in one way, and he preaches it to God-fearing Gentiles in another way, and he preaches it to pagans in a separate way, but he always preaches the same message. Paul is a one-trick pony. He only knows how to talk about one thing. It's the only thing, and he talks about it all the time. And so in Lystra, when it says that Paul is speaking, he's not just hanging out, but he's declaring Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the eternal longings God has put in your heart, and you will only find eternal life in him. And what we see is in Lystra, as he's preaching, he looks out at those gathered, and in a moment of Holy Spirit-inspired inspiration, he sees a man who's been disabled since the day he was born, who's never stood and never walked. And Paul senses, because of the direction of the Holy Spirit, that man has faith not only to believe in Jesus, but that he's going to be healed. And so Paul stops what he's saying, he turns his attention to him, and he says, stand up. And it says the man leaps to his feet. This is not a gradual healing. This is not a, uh, I think somebody has back pain moment, right? This is a, everyone in this city knows this man has never stood and never walked. And now he doesn't just kind of slowly get up, but God's miraculous power in a moment restores all those atrophied muscles, begins to make all of those nerves fire, and he leaps to his feet. 
And it's a reminder to us that when the gospel is proclaimed, God not only isn't hiding in that we hear the words of Jesus, he's not hiding in that we experience the power of Jesus. And so you and I, we, many of us, we have witnessed God's supernatural miracles being released to confirm the message of the gospel. But even if you haven't received or haven't seen the physical miracles that Jesus can do, I would bet that many of you have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in your life where you heard the message of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that message leapt off of the words of scripture and into your heart. That message leapt out of the words of your your friend's mouth and into your heart and you moved in a moment from darkness to life. You see this man in Lystra, when he jumps to its feet, it's not just symbolic of the supernatural healing power of God. It's reminding us of what happens in the moment of salvation. We don't gradually move from death to life. We don't begin a long, slow slog hoping to arrive at the end next to Jesus. But when you hear the gospel and you receive the gospel, in a moment, you leap to life. Addictions can be broken in a moment. Restoration can happen in a moment. Freedom can come in a moment. This is the power of Christ. And so when we say God is not hiding, we're not just saying you're going to hear the basic tenets of the gospel. We're not saying you're going to agree to a set of doctrine about who Jesus is. We're not saying you're going to sign off on a statement of belief. We're saying God is not hiding. He's going to show up in truth, in grace, and power in your life in ways that are so personal you cannot deny it. This is the good news of Advent. Not just that Jesus came a long time ago, that Jesus still shows up in ways that I can't deny and you can't deny. It's the good news of great joy that's for all people, that Christ comes to every single one of us. Now, sometimes when Jesus shows up in your life in personal and powerful ways, if you don't have a context for it, it can almost be a little confusing. So what we see happen in in Acts 14 is a group of people who seem to have no real context for who Jesus is. To this point in Acts, most of the people that Paul has preached the gospel to have been Jewish people or Gentiles who were God-fears, Gentiles who were familiar with the teachings of the Old Testament. And so in those settings, Paul would start with the scriptures and he would show them how Jesus was the fulfillment, how he was the Messiah. But in Lystra, he shows up and it's a bunch of pagans. It's people who don't know Jesus, who don't know anything about him, who aren't really familiar with the Old Testament, who are not God-fears, but instead have embraced all kinds of false religion, false belief, and false practices. And so Paul shows up and he begins to tell them who Jesus is. And he begins to, to, in a moment, call out this gift of healing. And so they've heard the power of the gospel. They've witnessed the confirmation of the gospel. And their response, instead of falling to their knees and surrender to Jesus, is to take what they've seen and to ascribe it to what they're already comfortable with. You see this in, in Acts chapter 14, verse 11. It says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, They shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was a chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So so again, when the crowd witnesses this supernatural work of God, their first response is to say, 
We know what this means. But in doing so, they demonstrate they have absolutely no idea what this means. Because they begin to say, well, well clearly Paul and, and, and Barnabas, these are the embodiment of our gods, Zeus and Hermes. So somebody quick, call for the priest and bring in the bulls. Right? And what you see in Acts chapter 14 is it's just this, this whole adventure in missing the point. And it's, it's a very chaotic scene. There's a whole lot of stuff going on here all of a sudden, and, and, and it can be easy for us, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, in a very different Western culture, to think, man, I'm glad we're not like those people. Like, I would, I, if I witnessed something like that, I would never ignore it. I would never just go along with my life as it was before. And, and especially when it comes to issues of idolatry and false religion, it can be easy for us to feel like those are, those are problems of other parts of the world or problems of other periods of time, but they are not problems for me today. And yet I, I think as we work through Acts chapter 14, as we're considering what the arrival of Jesus means, we have to stop and at least consider what it would look like for us to encounter Jesus and then to attribute his power and his presence to something that's more comfortable or more convenient. Right, we, we may not be people who are forming idols with our hands. We may not be people who are bowing before statues. We may not be people who are embracing mythology or other forms of paganism. But if we're not careful, even today in 2023 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we can hear about the power of God, we can encounter the power of God, and we can say that's nice and just go back to what's convenient and comfortable and known. John Calvin was one of the, the leaders of the Protestant Reformation. He was a, a brilliant French theologian. He once said that every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. And so what Calvin was, was talking about when he wrote this is that, that for many of us, especially those of us who've grown up like I would imagine a lot of us in the room did, in a, a Western Protestant-type mindset, Issues of idolatry seem far removed from us, and yet what Calvin taught, and, and what I think is worth our consideration today, is that for many of us, idolatry is not so much about what we form with our hands as what we worship with our hearts. And we can look at the people of Lystra and think, thank God I'm not like them, or we can look at the people of Lystra and say, Lord, is there any place in my life where I've encountered your power, where I've witnessed your presence, and I've just went back to what's convenient and what's comfortable? Is there any place where I have taken the good gifts that you've given me that are intended to point my attention toward you, and instead I have placed the unholy weight of my worship onto them? One of my, my favorite books kind of on this topic, because I, I think he does a great job of helping us move from what we think of as idolatry to what we may be tempted by as idolatry, is a book called Gods at War by a pastor named Kyle Eidelman. Uh, maybe, I don't know, five or six years ago, we, we preached through some of the, the ideas that he presents during a Lent message series that we had. And in it, Eidelman talks to us about how in, in our culture, in, in our world, we are tempted by idolatry, but because it's not uh, statues and idols, we never call it that. But he talks about how idolatry is exactly what Calvin said. It's not about what we form with our hands, it's what we worship with our hearts. And in our hearts, each of us remain master craftsmen of idols giving the glory, the attention, the passion, and the purpose that is supposed to be reserved for God alone to lesser things that we can control and we can manipulate. 
And so in the book, Eidelman talks to us about there, there are idols of power, there are idols of pleasure, there are idols of relationship that each of us are tempted to give our time and our energy and our attention toward. And so, so if you find yourself this morning thinking, man, I am so glad that that has never been a problem for me, I cannot encourage enough that you should add gods at war to the top of your Christmas list, right? And you might think, but I've never read a book. Well, it's New Year's is coming too. So it can be a Christmas gift and a New Year's resolution all together. It's very short. There's an audio version uh, that you can have as well. You can buy it and have your spouse read it to you. Uh, if, you're, if you're really just stubborn, you're just, I mean, you're, that's your idols, right? So your idol is that you don't read. Uh, so get over that one, embrace it, and let God speak to you. Because what you'll find is I still face this temptation, you still face this temptation of every good thing that God gives me, the enemy tries to turn it into an idol in my heart where it takes my attention, it takes my energy, it takes my passion, and I begin to give everything to it. And in doing so, I become just like the people in Lystra who have encountered Jesus, who've witnessed his power, and have exchanged it for what I already know and what I already like. And so what what happens in Acts chapter 8 is we see that even in spite of this big disaster, God continues to make himself known. So it takes a moment for Paul and Barnabas to recognize what's happening. Now, the reason for that is not because they're slow or inattentive. The reason is that when Paul is preaching to the people, he's most likely preaching in the Greek language. It would have been kind of the common language, the language of the economy, the language of the government. And so as Paul and Barnabas traveled, Greek is, is often what they're using, especially when they're preaching to people without any kind of, of Jewish background. And so as Paul's preaching to them in Greek, he's telling them who Jesus is. He's telling them what Jesus has done. The, the message that he gives to the man who's disabled is probably a message in the Greek language. And he responds. And then what happens, and Luke describes it for us, he says, when the crowd saw what happened, they begin to cry out in the Lyconian language. And so what happens, and, and for those of you in the room who are bilingual, so not most of us Americans, but for those of you who are bilingual, what you know is when you get really excited, it's your heart language that comes out, right? So, so let's say God supernaturally helped me learn Spanish. I, it, when I'm cheering for my kids at their basketball game, I would never be cheering in Spanish, right? I would always cheer in English. In fact, there's, there's a, a, a kid who plays basketball with my son, and his dad is a, a first-generation American from Mexico, I love sitting next to him at games because when he gets really excited, I'm yelling in English and he's yelling in Spanish, right? And just in case that ref is, is a native Spanish speaker, I know he's getting an earful in the language of his heart, right? So it's this really like comforting experience for us. So what happens in Lystra is they witness this miracle. This man leaps to his feet and they begin to cry out in the, 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 their own, the Lyconian language, the gods have come down among us. And Paul and Barnabas don't understand what's being said. And then the people begin to organize if somebody send for the priest so he can bring the sacrifices, so we can worship these men as the embodiment of our gods. Right? Do, do you see what's happening here? Paul and Barnabas have come to tell them about the incarnation of Jesus, that God has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. And when these people witness the power of Jesus, instead, they try to make it about the incarnation of Zeus and Hermes, that their gods have put on flesh and made their dwelling among them. 
It's a complete perversion of the gospel. This is idolatry at its core. This is exactly what the enemy does. He takes the elements of God's story that are meant to resonate with our hearts and he twists them and perverts them and offers a different form that leads to death. And so it takes a minute for Paul and Barnabas to figure out exactly what is happening. But once they do, they respond decisively. And it's a wonderful reminder to us that that even when you and I miss the point, even when God shows up in power, even when we recognize Christ has come and my life should be different, and even when we don't make the decision we're supposed to make, Even when we don't walk on the path of light and life that he's revealing to us. Even when we refuse to take our place as the sons and daughters of God. Even as we ignore him, reject him, or somehow try to change his message to something that's a little bit easier for us to handle. Even in that space, God continues to make himself known. So Paul and Barnabas, their response is not, oh, you dumb pagans. We're leaving and we're going down the road. We never should have come here in the first place. You're never, they don't do that. Instead, what do they do? They model for us what it means. They rush back into the crowd. They say, brothers, why are you doing this? What is going on, right? It's, it's this idea in Acts chapter 14, verse 15, where Paul confronts them and he says, we're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, Paul, we, we have seen it to this point, and you'll continue to see it throughout the book of Acts. Paul is not the most gentle person in the world, right? Which I don't, perhaps, I mean, we, we definitely saw in his pre-conversion experience, right? He was passionate. He was persecuting the church. He was imprisoning believers. He was approving of the stoning of believers. We see it in Paul's conversion experience. There's nothing gentle about it. Jesus knocks him onto the ground, blinds him with a light, and he has to be led by hand. And then as Paul begins to go out and share the gospel of Jesus, he continues to be pretty direct in his presentation of the gospel. And so in this space, he doesn't run into the crowd and say, brothers, I think you're a little misguided. Brothers, let's slow down for a minute and have a conversation. He runs out into the crowd and he tells them, you've got to turn away from these worthless things. Right? And so it's a, a reminder to us today that, that when we love and when we worship the wrong things, God loves us enough to withhold peace in our false worship. Right? So if you're worshiping the wrong things today, God will not let you find peace in them. He's going to let you be miserable in that space. He's going to to let you feel the frustration, feel the angst, feel the, I thought this would do it for me, but it doesn't. I thought this would get me where I needed to go, but it hasn't. I thought I would finally be at rest, but I'm not. I thought I would finally matter, but I don't. I thought I would finally have all that I need, and it's not enough. When we worship the wrong things, God loves us enough to say, hey, that stuff is worthless. Now, the things that you're putting, for, it's, there's a, a little nuance there in the application, right? Because in, in Acts chapter 14, what Paul calls worthless is pagan idol worship. There's no redemptive quality to pagan idol worship. There's no way that Paul can help them massage this into life with Jesus. 
It's completely worthless. And yet for you and I, what we have to understand today is if you're placing all of your time, all of your energy, all of your affection on your job, on your possessions, on your money, on your family, on your marriage, on your kids, it's not that those things in themselves are worthless. Those are good gifts from God. But your worship of them is worthless. Your worship of them will take you nowhere. Your worship of them will only lead you to aggravation and frustration, which should cause us to evaluate this morning. If I hate my job and find no satisfaction in it, is it possible it's because I'm putting too much worship into that space? Maybe your frustration with your spouse isn't actually about your spouse. Maybe it's that you're expecting them to act as your savior who perfectly and finally fulfills all the needs of your life. Maybe your disappointment with your children is not in their actions, but in your expectations. That you have held them to a standard of they're going to be the ones who bring significance and meaning to your life. Maybe the frustration with your home, with your possessions, with your plans for the future is not so much about where you live or what you do as it is that you thought those things would do more than they've done. And so in those spaces, your lack of peace is not a sign of God's absence. It's a gift of God's presence. It's God saying, I love you too much to let you satisfy eternal longings with temporary things. People and places and possessions and achievements can never satisfy the longing for eternity that God has put in the heart of every one of us. And what the scriptures teach us is that only Jesus can do that. And so Paul rushes into the crowd and he tells them, you've completely missed the point. I've brought you good news, but that good news is not just that Jesus has come. That good news is also you've got to turn away from these worthless things. And so when Jesus shows up in our life, our response is not just, oh, that's really great and I'm really impressed that he's here. Our response is also, and I see now how everything pales in comparison to him. And I'm going to turn away and I'm going to follow the path that he lays out for me. But Paul doesn't just rush in with offensive news. He also rushes in with some good news. He tells him in verse 17, he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Paul's reminding us the good things in life are intended to reveal the goodness of God to us. And so, so our response as followers of Jesus is not to turn away from what God has given us. It's not that we have to somehow live like religious hermits and move to the mountains or move to the desert and forsake all possessions and forsake all relationships and just live in isolation, trying to get as close to God as we can. But it's that we understand the gifts of God are intended to point us toward the grace of God. And that the presence of these good things in our life is intended to point us towards the presence of God as the giver of all things. And when we begin to orient our lives around the proper worship of Jesus Christ, what you find is he not only brings eternal life to your soul, but that experience begins to breathe life into every good thing that you have. When you put Jesus in his proper place, it brings resurrection life into your marriage. When you experience the grace of Christ in your life, you extend more grace to your spouse. When you experience Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, it sets you free as a mom or dad to not place all your hopes and all your dreams on your children. 
when you begin to understand that God is the giver of all things and the sustainer of everything, it helps you to hold the opportunities and the talents and the abilities and the possessions and the resources that he gives you with open hands as a generous steward. You begin to understand that he's the one who goes before you. He's the one who knows the number of your days and the number of hairs on your head. And so now you can walk into these spaces where once you were stressed out and burdened because you'd placed the weight of your worship on them, but now you get to walk into these spaces as an act of worship to the God who gave them to you. And so there is freedom and life in your relationships. There is freedom and life in your work. There is freedom and life in your pleasure and your leisure. There is freedom and life in everything you do because you do them as a son or a daughter of God, embracing them and stewarding them as gifts of his grace to you, but never worshiping them. And what you begin to find is that in place of anxiety and worry and fear and stress, you find peace and hope and joy and love. Because you walk with a firm and confident identity into every moment and situation knowing I am not what I do, I am not what others ascribe to me, but I am a son or I'm a daughter of God. I am fully known, I am fully loved. He is the one who has prepared every good work in advance for me to do. He's the one who has promised that he will lead me on right paths for his name's sake. And so I can trust him to speak and to lead. I can trust him to guide and provide. And in every space where I experience need or lack, I believe that he is the sustainer and the provider of all things. And so Advent is not just the arrival of Jesus as an infant. It's the arrival of Jesus as the fulfillment for every longing for eternity that God has placed in every human heart. And our confidence comes not in our ability to find him, but in that he shows himself to us again and again and again in personal and powerful ways. And then Acts Acts 14, verse 18 is where we'll finish this morning. It says, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the people from sacrificing to them. And it's a reminder to us this morning that the gospel is true. The gospel is powerful. Jesus shows up in, in supernatural and undeniable ways. And yet, the process of moving from death to life for some of us can be difficult because it's a rejection of what we've always known and an embrace of something new. And and next week, we'll get into some of the other responses that Paul and Barnabas encounter. But but for today, we just want to consider that idea of we never want to be the people who encounter Jesus, but stay stubbornly stuck in our old ways of thinking because it's comfortable and it's convenient. We want to walk the path he's laying out for us. So if you'll stand with me, I want to pray for us. The band's going to come back and lead us in a final song today. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we come to you. We believe you are the one who's above all things and in all things. We thank you that during Advent, we have the opportunity to reflect and remember that you have put on flesh and made your dwelling among us. That you have come as the eternal word of God to speak words of life and hope and salvation to us. And so today, Jesus, we confess our sins We repent and turn away from our old ways of living, believing, and acting. And we place the full weight of our worship and expectation on you today. We believe that you are God's provision for us. We believe that you are the revelation of truth and life.
Jesus, we receive your grace and we want to surrender completely to you and walk the path you're laying out for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.